The following message comes to you from the pulpit of Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church in Ackerman, Mississippi. We invite you to visit Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church for worship services every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. Macedonia is located at 11 Staten Road on Highway 15, five miles north of Ackerman, Mississippi. For more information about Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church, you may visit our website at macedonia-pbc.org. You know, we sang a few songs this morning that uh, all of them touched my heart, but the one, uh, does Jesus care? Does he really care? Does he really care about me? And I, as Brother Adam said, we know that he does. But that's kind of what's on my mind, uh, that he does care, and he tells us to place our burdens on him and to come to him. Uh, and so I want that's what, what's on my mind this morning, and uh, I pray that the Lord will loosen my mind to to talk about a few things so if you would i'm going to start over in the book of matthew if you have your bibles and like to follow along and be with me before i turn to in matthew in chapter 11 i want you to think about for a second a little bit of what our lord and savior faced in his time when he came and was trying to preach and teach and um so in the book of Matthew, let's start about in verse 20. <clears throat> First off, remember what's happening here. He's talking to those that he was sent to speak to, those in the Jews to teach and to really to come to God's people, uh, what, who, the ones that considered themselves God's people, uh, those of the Israel descent, the Jewish folks that had the law of God, had the law and the prophets and the Psalms and all that they needed to know who God was. And, and they really kind of considered themselves to be God's people, and rightfully so. God had let them know that they were a chosen people, and he had given their law, his law to them through Moses back in the day when they were delivered out of Egypt's land and had God's law all the years leading up to when our Lord and Savior came. So they knew they were a chosen people of God. If they didn't know that, boy, they really had their head under a rock. But they knew who they were. The problem is they began to kind of be uppity about it. It's kind of like they just <clears throat> thought that they were the only ones. And, uh, you know, I think that's a big purpose for Jesus coming is to let them know that um, that Israel is not just a a, a, a people of a particular part of the country. Israel is a spiritual people. Israel is is Jews and Gentiles alike that are God's people. There's a spiritual Israel, not just uh, just a, a place and an origin of people and makes them who they are. And we know that every child of God is born by God's Holy Spirit. They're baptized with the Holy Ghost and they become a, a new creature in Christ and they they're God's people by that manner. But as Jesus came <clears throat> and he's teaching with his disciples here and, <clears throat> and others around, in verse 20 of Matthew, it says, Then began he to upbraid the cities wherein most of his mighty works were done because they repented not. So picture for a second that he comes to of his own. He does mighty works, healing sick people, uh, all these kind of things happening people right before their eyes with, you know, feeble hands and bodies uh, and uh, sickness of disease, things like this, the lepers being, you know, we sang 
song about, you know, he can make the leper spots go away, basically, and he could and did and prove that out. And so when he comes and does these mighty works, he's still seeing people uh, that he came to, to preach to, that are supposed to be God's people that don't seem to believe him, that don't really, you know, believe what he's doing, and they kind of try to set him up for failure in many ways, and they just uh, are skeptics. And uh, not all of them, but some are. And so in these cities that he's coming to and he's seeing that happen, he begins, I can just imagine, uh, I, I would get a little angry about that. And I think that's kind of what he's a little little upset here. He says it begins to upbraid them. He says, woe unto the Charizan, woe unto the Bethsaida, for if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, and they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. In other words, they would, have, they would have recognized. He's saying these people would have recognized a mighty work when they come. And uh, he says, but, but look at what you're doing. He says, but I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the day of judgment than you. And thou, Capernaum, which art, art exalted unto heaven, shall be brought down to hell. Now, that doesn't mean, um, I, I think you, you want to think about here that it's not saying necessarily that that everybody in that city is going to go to hell, okay? It's just saying that you're going to be brought down to a place that that you you wouldn't expect to find yourself as one of God's people because, you you know, God will let things happen. And we're going to talk a little bit about that today. God will let things happen to let us know that um, that we should be merciful, repentful to... Uh, and to show love and mercy to others and not just kind of beat ourselves on the chest and think that we're just entitled and so on. It's okay, and that's part of my message today, it's okay to recognize that we are God's people and be proud of that, but there's a difference in being proud of that and standing up for that and fighting for that than to turn around and shove it into someone else's face and to say, I'm a, I'm a Christian and I'm better than you. I mean, we, I, none of us, I'm sure, do that. I'm just... I, I'm just going to go ahead and preach what's on my mind this morning. So uh, uh, I don't think there's anyone here that, that thinks in that way whatsoever. Then that's a good thing. That way I can just speak freely about it and we're on the same page, I'm sure. But anyway, let's move on. Anyway, he says in verse 24, But I say unto you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for thee. And I want you to think about that. That's kind of a bold statement coming from someone speaking to uh, the Jews of this day and time when they come in, when he comes in there and, and they would know the story of Sodom. Sodom is a place where just evil, re- unrepentant people and, and crimes and things were going on. People, uh, if you don't know a lot about the story of, um, uh, of Sodom and Gomorrah and, and that kind of thing, You'll remember that Abraham, we'll just talk about it briefly, but uh, probably you know this, but Abraham's uh, nephew Lot and his family were there in Sodom and had pitched their tent there or or their home there. And as they were there, there was um, basically, I'm going to just cut it down to what it is. There's no children in the room, but it was homosexuality going on just rampant there. Uh, When the angels appeared, when God had God had planned to go and just annihilate Sodom. I'm going to put it in my own words. And so when the angels show up and the people, the men of this city that are around the home of Lot, 
see the men, what appear to be men, angels, go into the home, then they begin to go and knock on the door and inquire about these men, saying, send them out to us. And that's about where I'm going to leave that story. Because they didn't want a, uh, they didn't, it wasn't the welcoming committee, uh, welcome to town kind of committee. It was that kind of, you know, uh, unrepentant person. The person wasn't thinking about uh, what was, what God has set up and what God intended for uh, relationships to be like. They just, uh, the, the, you know, lust of the flesh was just rampant. And that's what they uh, were inclined to want to just follow. And so that's the kind of people that Jesus is now saying to these here as he's on the scene that it's going to be more tolerable for that kind of people standing in judgment of God than it will be for you that, that do not believe me when I say I'm the Son of God. And, and coming and doing these miracles in front of you that you can recognize and see they are good works. I mean, uh, you, you remember that when Nicodemus, one of the rulers of the Pharisees, came and talked to Jesus and said that we perceive you are a man of God. We know this. None can do the works that you do except you be of God. And he lets Nicodemus know that he's seeing something that others do not, that it's a spiritual awakening, a spiritual vision, a spiritual ear to hear. Jesus has come to show that to all children of God, whether they be Jew or Gentile. But the Jews especially were supposed to be recognizing when the Son of Man come and, and was representative here on earth uh, God in the flesh. They they should have all people recognized him. And I think what he's saying is they got blinders on. You know, I have to question, were some of them God's children or were some of them just so tied up in the law that they just, I, you know, I think there were some just tied up in the law and wanting to do their own thing and it was going to mess up their life and it was going to kind of, you know, here they've got this great grand temple. I mean, something that would be one of the wonders of the world. And here's a man coming and saying, every stone will be turned, you know, will be tore down of this this temple that y'all are so proud of. Even the disciples, when they walked through the temple, they would say things to Jesus like, you know, look at the manner of these stones. I watched a documentary here recently about... uh, some of the stones of the original temple, they were able to, they're just now, I mean, even now, archaeology is proving out things that our Bible has told us that we believe true for years and years, but archaeology is, is catching up, it's beginning to prove out and show these different sites over there in the Holy Land that, that are real, and they're able to, they found places they can get under the ground of where the base of the temple is at and see stones that uh, are just, you know, like if you took a corner of this room and made a stone that big that they had cut out, I mean, there were some larger than that that they would roll into place and, and make a foundation. And it's just a, an amazing wonder of the world. But these are the kind of things that the disciples walking around would say, would look at and wonder about. And, G- and here's Jesus saying, it will be torn down. So, he sure he had a lot of things to say that were, were conflicting to those that thought they knew it all but that was the point he was coming to say 
that you're going to need to look at things differently than just your worldly view of what's around and what's uh, attainable in this world. There, he was trying to give them a way of looking at things with a spiritual eye and, t- and telling them how he wanted uh, his house to be. You know, Jesus came to establish what we know now as the church. And when he came, uh, they weren't worshiping in, in tr- full truth and spirit. And uh, I really just need to get that right. He says, you know, all that come must worship in spirit and in truth. And uh, they, they go together, but the spirit needs to perceive the truth, you see. The spirit comes in and gives us life, and then we need to then knowledgeably learn the truth. Uh, so he came... Even those that had the Spirit needed to hear more truth. Someone like a Nicodemus who wasn't sitting there accusing Jesus. And it seemed, anytime you read about him there, it seemed like he, he was one that would believe and follow Jesus. You remember that Nicodemus was one of the ones with Joseph of Arimathea that went and took care of the body of Jesus when they took him off the cross. So we know that Nicodemus loved Jesus and believed in Jesus. But that's a type of Pharisee that saw it and believed it and followed. And then we get the type that's not. So Jesus is upbraiding these kind of people, letting them know that you're not seen. You're, you're in denial. You're denying me. And this, this does not make Jesus happy, and it does not make the Father happy. I, I, I tend to believe that if it weren't for Jesus standing in front of some of these people, the Father would probably be even more unhappy. I think He's standing there and the Father knows who or He is and there are each one that He put in Jesus before the foundation of the world. So as Jesus is there, He is, is told that He is our intercessor. So when we're out here messing up, it, you know, we, we can't just always talk about our, our Old Testament folks and New Testament folks that are past and gone. We need to talk about sometimes ourselves when we're messing up we have that same intercessor today, Jesus Christ, our Savior. So as he's upbraiding them, let's go down and see what he tells them. You might say he pleads with them to do. In verse 25, at that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and has revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father... For so it seemed good in thy sight. All things are delivered unto me of my Father, and no man knoweth the Son but the Father, neither knoweth any man the Father save the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. So that in a nutshell tells us exactly how we come to know Jesus, how we come to know the Father. We, because we can't know either except it's revealed unto us and it says the son does that it says the son will reveal him and then what does he say to those that it's been revealed to it says come unto me all ye that labor and are heavy laden and i will give you rest he's take my yoke upon you he tells them it, that and wants them to learn of him he's meek he's lowly in heart and he tells them if you do this, you will find rest unto your souls. He goes on to say this is not a hard task in this world, and really it's not. Compared to the way um, those Old Testament saints had to worship and come to worship and how strict it was and the, the um, things that they had to do, like, you know, there's a place that the women had a place in the court, of, um, in the temple there. 
And then just the priesthood could go into this other area of worship. And then outside that were just, the, you know, where the Gentiles could come into a, an area out in the kind of courtyard. So everybody couldn't come and assemble like we can today so easily, walk into a building and, and take up our Bible, sing praises to God, uh, you know, reflect in our minds about what He's done for us, and then uh, a brother offers some, some simple prayer, thinking about those that are in need, and then someone try to get up and proclaim His Word. They, they, and, and people be at peace with that and not uh, backbiting and looking for the best seats in the house and all this. You know, this is the kind of stuff that, that now we enjoy and so many people take for granted. Um, you know, I haven't been to this little church too many times, but enough, and I've driven these roads enough that you pass house after house along the way. I know there's more people in this area that could fill this building, and so do you, and I'm, and, and you're like all the little churches that we, we have, our sister churches that wish the surrounding area would fill the building. It's so easy that, that they just don't do it, and um, that's a shame, but... Jesus says in his own word, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You know, see, he said he, the Lord has revealed it unto babes, people that weren't the wisest, you know, people like me, uh, people that, that <clears throat> you know, someone that out here is a preacher on television probably that has had... Uh, years of seminary school or something like that and they think that someone like me possibly wouldn't even be qualified to stand in front of them probably but you know the lord takes people of different uh, uh different statues in life that for different reasons for me why did he choose me i i certainly don't feel worthy but i think i guess in time as i look at it you know i've had a lot of experiences uh, not always being the best disciple for sure and it's like anyone that's um i've never been a i wouldn't say i've ever been a drug addict this sort of thing but you think about people that try to counsel drug addicts a lot of times it's people that were drug addicts and they know what it's like and then they can counsel someone who's going through that because they've been through that so sometimes poor sinners like myself and and others God calls them out to preach His Word because they know what it's like to, to be without. And they know what it's like to, to feel the absence of God blessing them, things like that. And so it makes it um, a, real, a real heartfelt message, I think, to, when you, you know those things. We sang a song, uh, again, he's talking about, we know He cares when my loved ones passed you know and my heart is breaking does he know does he care you know it made me think for a second about my mother that passed away just a few years ago who was instrumental in taking me to the old church to start with and uh you know and being there with me and and uh, being that example and we sang blessed assurance today that was a song that she would oftentimes i'd get up in the morning and she'd be humming as she cooked, because she'd never sing out loud, she's embarrassed of her voice, but as she's cooking, she'd be humming this song, and me as a little four- and five-year-old child would, would hear and feel this humming, you know, and, and it was just the, um, the best thing. And I didn't know for a long time until I got older what song that was. But 
like any nursery rhyme or song that you hear as a child and you kind of remember that that that, that tune uh, that tune always stuck in my head and then as I got into the old church and we began singing like Blessed Assurance I, hey that's what mom's been humming all these years you know uh, when I was little so these are the things that simple folk that that God says he has revealed it unto babes that's the magic of that that comes out into just the common person that he knows, uh, yea, I may have a common place here on this earth, but I'm part of something more. I'm part of something that is uh, not of this world. I'm just a pilgrim sojourning here. Uh, uh, he lets us know that. But these, uh, these people that he's come unto, that, that seeing this, that should be smart enough to recognize this, He's showing this is the mystery of God. This is the, the beauty of, of God and what He does because He does something that's on the inside of the person and it doesn't have to go through their brain first. It goes into the heart and it penetrates the heart and it changes the heart and it, 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 it turns someone into something that they're not without God. And then all of a sudden, they can believe. And then they can come and they can cast their, their cares upon the Lord. And he tells them to do just that. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and he will give us rest. That's a promise. Um, let's look then uh, some of the things too I was just thinking about as he faced. I'd like to think about, on the way over here, I really hadn't planned to, to talk about Job. But as I was thinking about the message coming that was kind of in my mind, I thought to myself, you know, the cares and things that he has said to cast are, you know, come unto him. These, these heavy burdens and things that we seem to deal with in our life. And I thought, we would be hard-pressed. Any person, I, I just can't think of anybody, and certainly myself, uh, I would challenge, I guess, most anyone to say that they have went through the burdens and the trials and the temptations, the test, if you would, of life any more than Job. And you think, why? And that ought to in itself define to us why we have the example of Job. Job is there for that very purpose, to teach us. Um, we'll get there, but I, I would like to say something too before I go, just to remind us uh, something that... That Brother Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians in chapter 10. He says in, in chapter 10, <clears throat> verse 11, Now all these things happened unto them for in samples. He's talking about uh, things of the, the Old Testament folks and people that come before. All these things that happened. says these things are happened for in samples that they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able. Now, that's sort of a mouthful. I've heard that said in ways like God will never put more on you than you can stand. I, I've, I've been guilty of that myself in the past. And I think that's a, a, a close statement, but it's not really what is being said here. So I'd like to talk about that. It's not that God puts... First off, that's in fa it's fallible for me to say that God's putting something on me in that way that... that uh, now, and that's where we're going to talk about Job. 
But he's saying here in this, he said, there's no temptation out here in the world that you have seen or ever going to face that has not already been faced by man, has not already been faced somewhere in the world. You know, see, Satan, he just repackages temptation over and over in different ways uh, to, to man. It's not anything new under the sun, according to our scripture. But, you know, Satan has a way of just putting sin and temptation out there in front of us in a new way, always trying to tempt us one way or the other. But what Paul is saying here is that there's none out there that God is not faithful if he's allowed. So here's the point. If God is allowing you to be tested or a trial come upon you, if it's of his doing that he's allowing that to happen, he will not allow enough in that way to tempt you or test you, but what there is an escape for you if you turn to him, if you come to him. In other words, the test and the trial is there to prove out and show and, uh, and, and then sometimes give us strength more than maybe we had to start with because we hadn't gone through that kind of test or trial before. And so as, that, as we go through that, he's saying, I'm there for you and I will not allow enough to happen to you that I couldn't pull you back out if you'll just recognize that I am where your help comes from. And that's really what the trial is there a lot of times is to teach us that that is where our help comes from on a regular daily basis, every time, every day, no matter what it is, to suffer that loved one that has passed on in the heartbreak of that or, uh, you know, an injury or whatever it be in your life or just old age and I just can't move around like I used to could. I mean, um, there's a couple of you may have a few years on me here, but I've got enough on me that, uh, matter of fact, I went through back surgery about in September and I can assure you that I didn't want it, but um, God was there. God was there taking care of me through the whole thing. And that's, a, that's another story. I'll share that with you later. Because um, I, I feel like I can say that with a fact. But here we go. He's saying, He will make a way to escape that ye may be able to bear it. Wherefore, my dearly beloved, flee from idolatry. Now, this was kind of one of the things that he was telling them to, that was one of their tests, one of their temptations here. They were, they had idols. Um, again, I'll bring out something that um, I've talked about and heard others talk about plenty of times. It's not that idols have to be this statue out here that someone's worshiping and putting up as an idol. It can be that we worship wealth or we... Um, you know, put too much stock in this, that, and another in this world, things that will, that are just um, of the world. They're not of God necessarily. They're of the world. And we, we begin to put too much uh, importance on that. And we let the importance of worshiping God and recognizing Him go to the wayside. And then that becomes an idol to us. Well, we're talking about Job for a second. It's no doubt that God does let things happen to us sometimes. And put it this way, the way I view that is that the only reason things, bad things are happening to us all the time, and I say that all the time because Satan uh, despises God's children. And the world which this we're part of is corrupt. And as Jesus has told in His words, if they hate me, don't be surprised if they hate you also. And you don't seem to get a fair shake in this world many times. 
So here's Job, an upright kind of person, living for God. Let's go to the book of Job, chapter 1. There was a man in the land of us whose name was Job, and that man was perfect and upright and one that feared God and eschewed evil. Sounds like a good fella. He's worshiping God. He, he fears God. In other words, he reveres God. He's the type of person that he would be here every Sunday morning for church. And he had seven sons and three daughters, it says. I won't read this whole story, but let's go down to verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. And the Lord said unto Satan, Whence comest thou? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro in the earth, and from walking up and down in it. So we know from that where he's at. He's here on earth. He's moving about. We can't see him. Um, He is a spiritual kind of being. Now, can he manifest himself into something that we could see? I, you know, I'm not going to try to even entertain that or talk about that. I just know that I don't always see, but I know he's there to corrupt me if I if I'm not watching out for myself, you know. But the Lord said unto Satan, "Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and upright and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil?" He's. I think. The Lord is saying here to Satan to let him know that, you know, here it is what Satan would consider a fragile human being. Just, you know, Satan wonders why does God even have any love or care for his creation and man? Because Satan sees himself as something bigger, better, and way beyond uh, a human man. I mean, Satan, see, he sees himself up here. He ought to be up here on the same playing field with God. That's where he, it's where he thinks he is. That's, who, that's how well and he thinks of himself as the reason he had to be sent down to start with. And so here he is. Satan answers the Lord and says, Doth Job fear God for naught? In other words, there's a reason that he respects you, Lord. He thinks you're going to take care of him. I'm putting some of this in my words. He says he, he thinks you're going to take care of him no matter what. And, and he says, you know, I can't touch him, basically, because you've got the hedge up. And he says um, in verse 11, But put forth thine hand now and touch all that he hath, and he will curse thee to thy face. That's what Satan's telling the Lord. If you take all his belongings, all that he, um, you know, likes and desires in this world, if you took that from him, he would, he would be done with you, God. He would have no reverence for you. And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, all that he hath is in thy power. Only upon himself put not forth thine hand. And again, I'm going to kind of skip down. He he really does a number on Job. He takes um, cattle and different things all away from him. Uh, We went down to verse 15. It said, The Sabaeans fell upon them and have slain the servants with the edge of the sword. And only I am escaped alone to tell thee. This one servant comes back and tells Job about all uh, that has happened. Uh, said all the oxen that were plowing and the asses that were feeding beside him, they've, they've, they've come uh, fell to these people. And then while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, the fire of God has fallen from heaven and hath burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. Then while he was yet speaking, another came and said, the Chaldeans made out three bands and fell upon the camels and carried them away. Yea, and slain the servants 
with the edge of the sword. And only one here that this telling is the only one that's escaped. While he's still yet speaking, another came to him, thy sons and thy daughters. He had seven sons and three daughters, we read of earlier. They were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house, a family gathering. And here it says, and behold, there came a great wind from the wilderness. You can imagine, I, I, I picture that like a big tornado, possibly. Comes out, smote the four corners of the house. And it fell upon the young men, and they are dead. And I only am escaped to tell thee. It says, Job rose and rent his mantle. I mean, he just kind of like, you know, ripped his shirt apart sort of thing. You know, just in agony. And he says, naked I came out of the womb, and naked shall I return thither. In other words, I, I, came, out, I came out. I didn't have anything when I was first born. What I have now was a, a blessing of the Lord. And uh, I can't take it with me. No, he's, he's still recognizing and revering that God gave, God can take away, God's able to provide. That's the, the way I would take that as what he is saying. I'm going to try to make this a little more brief. Satan's, of course, still accusing God of keeping the hedge up so much around um, Job that Job would not you know, defer to go away from God. And so he says down here in uh, verse 6 of chapter 2, And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, he is in thine hand, but save his life. Satan goes on then, says, to inflict Job with boils. I don't know if any of you have ever, when you're younger, maybe had a pimple or something like that or any kind of wound, but, you know, something like a, a sore spot that you can't hardly stand to touch. And here he has inflicted with this sort of thing from the bottom of his feet to the top of his head. And he's sitting down with a pot shirt. I, I picture a, a, a piece of, he's itching and, and hurting and he's just sitting there scraping the skin, you know, and he's just, just miserable. And he sits down in these ashes. His wife even tells him, his, his, the one person he needs to lean on at the moment, even she sees this like, uh, God doesn't care about you. If he did, if he really cared about you as much as you seem to care about him and his servant, then then this would not happen. Uh, again, I'm I'm ad libbing a little. If y'all will give me liberty, but he says, then his wife said unto him, "Dost thou still retain thine integrity? Curse God and die." You know, I think she sees that that they've lost everything, lost their children, and here now she, in front of her, her husband is afflicted from bottom of foot to the top of the head with boils, I mean what, what's left? It just seems like uh, we'd be happier off if we were just dead. So it's kind of hard to blame her for feeling what she's feeling at the moment but uh, Job is he's still, he's still for God. He says, but he said unto her thou speakest as one of the foolish women speaketh. What shall we, we receive good at the hand of God and shall we not receive evil? And all this did Job uh, did not Job sin with his lips? He didn't sin with his lips. You know, I'm going to go over a little bit further here, and uh, we'll probably get out of Job in just a second. But if you went a little further over, he has friends that come to speak with him. And again, some of you may know all of this if you've read Job. You've been through it and, and know a little bit of this. 
but he has friends that come and try to talk to him. None of them really give him the comfort that he needs. And in most of them, as you read them, what you come away from uh, seeing and reading and feeling is that they kind of point a finger at Job, that you must be doing something in your life. Something's wrong with you, Job, um, you know, or God wouldn't do this. In other words, they're saying God would not allow this to happen. We just read God allowed this to happen to Job. And we might, and, and when you first read this again, we might read it with a, a thought in mind that why in the world would, would God allow this to happen to one of his own? Why would he, you know, someone that we read in verse 1, someone that revered God and eschewed evil, it did, would have nothing to do with evil, an upright man, most probably the most upright man in the whole area there, and God allows this to happen to him, boy, what's there to save me? Because I'm not as good as Job. And I think about that today. I mean, what's to, uh, if that doesn't make, you know, a, a a God-fearing child of God think about himself or herself in a way that they kind of uh, think about their own trials here and if they don't sit back and think for one second about how maybe I'm not being the best disciple for the Lord, how that might displease the Lord and how the Lord might take the hedge down, I think that's why that story's here. That story of Job is there to teach us that there's nothing happened to Job, nothing uh, that you know, or in other words, I, I said that wrong. Nothing happened in our life, really, that I could compare to what has happened to Job. And I look at my little trials and my little temptations, my little problems. Sometimes, like it's the biggest thing in my life, and maybe I've had a similar experience. But if you read about Job, all of a sudden it puts in perspective that you hadn't faced what Job has faced. I, I you know, I've, I said I had surgery, but. But I haven't had to sit with boils from the bottom of the foot. I, you know, I, I can picture I, could, I couldn't hardly stand to walk on your feet. And you just, you're miserable and you just want to go sit in a corner somewhere and, and scratch these places. I mean, it's just unfathomable to think about what he went through and, then, and he did not curse God. That's the one thing that, that Satan was banking on and he thought would happen is that you let me do all this to him and I will show you that that your spirit in a man is not enough to keep that man true to you. That's what he was trying to prove out, is that God's spirit in a man cannot hold him. God cannot contain and keep that man in his hand. And I think that, 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 that God put Job there because he's such an upright man that he knew the boundaries of what Job could take. Remember we all already read over there in Scripture in Corinthians where we were at that the Lord won't suffer uh, us to deal with things that He won't make a way of escape. Now, He did with Job as well. Now, Job had to suffer probably more than any man on this earth ever has, but Job did not curse him and die as, as even his wife Let's go over to chapter 13 of Job. As these three, three friends have been talking to him, he finally tells them basically to keep quiet uh, because they're not helping him. And he says in verse 15 of chapter 13, Though he slay me, this is Job, Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him, but I will maintain mine own ways before him. He also shall be my salvation. 
for an hypocrite shall not come before him. This is his kind of determination that uh, though I lose everything, though I, be, I become you know ill, my body's not well, I still am going to trust in the Lord. And He will be my salvation. And I'm not going to try to be a hypocrite before Him. Uh, this was His uh, thinking. This is what He said to them. Now God, in the end of Job, does kind of get right with Job. He kind of tells Job some things and we, we kind of wondered, well, with all that stuff that Job didn't deny God and Job was still upright and so on, why uh, does God kind of get on to him and get right with him? Um, but I would tell you, there's Job in the beginning, he says things like, um, God should not even revere the day of my birth. You know, he's basically saying, what's he saying with that? God made a mistake. God made a mistake by even letting me live. Now, even though that sounds like someone who's still revering God, he's still in, in his thinking that I should never have lived. I should never have been on this earth. No, Job, you needed to be on this earth. Unfortunately, God uh, allowed things to you to happen, but he, he does deliver Job in the end. But God didn't make a mistake. God needed to prove out the strength of his spirit in the man. He needed to prove out that his servant would not quit being his servant no matter what Satan puts him under in this world. And he needed to prove out to, to, to Job even that, Job, you've got to, still got a purpose. As long as you're on this earth and I put you there, then you have a purpose in life. And he restores Job. But that's, that's a, a lengthy story. We won't go into the rest of that. But I hope that's kind of in a nutshell sort of gives you a reason why it is that um, that we go through trials sometimes, it's to make us stronger. It's strengthen us because I think of some of my past trials like this that I've seen it, and if you live long enough, you begin to recognize it. A young person has trouble seeing this, but as you get older and the maturity and the wisdom of things show you that there are other things that can happen to you in life. And because I went through this smaller trial, then I'm stronger and I see it and I understand it better. And I still know where my help comes from. And um, God saw me through that one. He'll see me through this one. And that's the kind of attitude that we can form when we've had the experience of God in our life. And we, we actually truly internalize the stories of Job and the trials that he went through. And we see him still be true to God. God does have to kind of make him understand and see that, that he didn't make a mistake by having Job around. Um, someone might say, well, is it fair for God to let those things happen? I would say to you, um, is it fair for God to ever intervene in our lives and protect us any whatsoever as we live on this earth? Is it fair for him to do that? Is it fair when we're still um, sinners and not able to serve Him uh, correctly all the time? Uh, when we sin, is it fair for Him to turn around and be merciful to us and forgive us just because we, um, here we are doing it again, God. Oh, have mercy on me. Is it fair for Him to keep on turning the other cheek and seemingly letting us slap it 
and then turn around and let us repent and forgive us. He says, keep coming unto me. I will give you rest. So these things, these trials that we bring sometimes upon ourselves with our own temptations, it's a trial. And we need rest from that on a daily basis. Job is our example, or one of the best ones. Let's turn then um, to the book of John. I've got just a little bit more time, if I can take it with you for just a second. I want to hit a couple of things here with you. find my my text here go to John in chapter 6 in chapter 6 I would like to spend the rest of the time if we could talking exactly about what Jesus is to us what He taught them that He was to them and what He is to us today. These same kind of people that would not believe Him, the same kind of people that He had to kind of upbraid and try to teach. In verse 40, we read in chapter 6, it says, And this is the will of Him that sent me. Jesus is saying, This is what God sent me. To do that, everyone which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. He came to let us know that we are, in all essence, eternal and belong to him, and that we've got a place, and this world is not our home. And that's kind of what he came to let them know. But here's what the Jews thought about that they begin to murmur at him. In other words, they begin to argue amongst themselves and talk bad about him. It says, because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he saith, I came down from heaven? Jesus therefore answered and said unto them, murmur not among yourselves. No man can come to me except the father which sent me draw him and I will raise him up at the last day. You know, first off, he already said that we read in an earlier passage, passage that we know him because he reveals himself to us. That no one has ever seen the Father except Jesus the Son and to whom he will reveal himself to. And Jesus has the power to reveal and does reveal it to his children. And he says, no man then can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets... He's telling them, go back and look at your, your scrolls that you would, they would have had at this time and read. It says, and they shall be all taught of God. Every man, therefore, that hath heard and hath learned of the Father cometh unto me. Note, not that any man hath seen the Father, save he which is of God. He hath seen the Father. You know, later on, you, you would read even where the disciples ask him, show us the Father. And they say, have you not been with me long enough to know that if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me hath everlasting life. 
If you believe Jesus is the Savior, you, you have everlasting life. That is just a, 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 you might as well write it in stone and have it here on the wall, but that's a true saying. If you believe in Jesus, you have everlasting life. You can't believe in Jesus if you don't have everlasting life because the, the, the everlasting belief of that is something that is spiritual that you and I have been given by that revelation that Jesus gave to each and, of, each and every one of us through the Holy Spirit. He says, I am the bread of life. This is the essence of what He is. He says, I am life. And if you take of me, you are taking part in that life with me. <laughs> uh, now, we don't really have a, a choice in the matter of, of taking that eternal life. We don't get to... I know y'all are, y'all are old Baptists. Y'all already know what I'm saying. But I need to go ahead and finish this out. We know that we do not have the ability to choose eternal life for ourselves which is a good thing because if I don't have a choice to obtain it I also don't have the ability to lose it <laughs> it's out of my power that's a great thing it's out of our control it's in the control of, of the Father the Son the Holy Ghost it's in their control I'm so glad of that that gives me peace and rest in my soul the rest of this is coming to Jesus uh, stuff is that we come to Him because we still live here now. We're not with Him in eternity yet. And as we walk and live here, we do face the trials that Satan will throw at us. And just because we're going through a bad time, I want to go ahead and throw this in there since we got into Job. It doesn't always mean that God took the hedge down. Um altogether it just means that uh, he's not changing that course in our life uh, when my mother passed he didn't change the course of her life that day me needing back surgery he didn't change the direct the tra- you know, trajectory of that or me needing that it's something that had to happen uh, could he have changed it? Could he have healed me? Could he have extended the life of a loved one? He can do all of those things. And we read about every one of those things in Scripture. He doesn't always change what's happening in our life, but that is proof to us that he has given us a life to live. Uh, we're not puppets on the string. We're not robots with some program that just, you know, everything is not predetermined or predestinated to happen to us on a daily basis it is just life and we're living in a sometimes ungodly world and bad things happen it is not God's hand that's causing anything bad to happen all good things come from above it may be in his hand sometimes to take the, to hedge down but we talked about why that might be. is to, to give us strength sometimes with the trials of our life and maybe even to correct us and to bring us back into obedience. Those that He loves, He will chastise. Let's go finish up here. In, we talked about those that were around, but what about the disciples? Let's finish up with them. What is it that, you know, how did they handle some of this kind of stuff? This kind of talk about he's the bread of life and things like that. In the same chapter of John, chapter 6, 
Jesus is speaking to all of them. And He says in verse 54, Whoso eateth My flesh and drinketh My blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For My flesh is meat indeed, and My blood is drink indeed. He that eateth My flesh and drinketh My blood dwelleth in Me and I in him. As the living Father hath sent me, and I live by the Father, so he that eateth me, even he shall live by me. This is that bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers did eat manna and are dead. He that eateth of this bread shall live forever. Those that had no spiritual ear to hear that message, uh, you can imagine it, it, it in their mind sounded exactly the way we read it. Is that, th- that they're having to eat his flesh, drink his blood. Sounds like some kind of, what, what we might call some kind of satanic ritual. I mean, I, I feel, I, I don't even, uh, I hope the Lord allows me to freedom to say it that way and not uh, offend in any way. I'm not trying to be offensive in any way or disrespectful to God in any way whatsoever. But if we read it and didn't have the spiritual eye and the spiritual ear, no, not any one of us could t- took that same saying. And so you've got people here. Now, so why is that then? Why does he say it that way? Because there were some there that did not believe him, that were not his sheep. And he also came to bear that out and wasn't afraid to stand up and say it in a way that it it, it, it divides. In other words, it begins already to separate the sheep from the goats right there. Because when they hear this kind of stuff and they can't take it, because they don't have the spirit to hear. It shows who are against him, who does not believe him, and who would uh, potentially go ahead and crucify him. Now, uh, I'm not saying that everyone that put him on the cross there was uh, bound for hell. I'm saying that uh, everyone didn't have their eyes open, and there also were some there that weren't his sheep. He says that in places there. So we've got a culmination of God's people that are believing him, God's people that still have some blinders on, some that are not His. And they're all here in one place. And when He says things like this, it starts cutting through the, 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 the gray. It starts cutting through. There's no gray. It's black and white. It's right down the middle. When you, You're going to have to believe in Jesus to take this kind of talk. And His disciples began to kind of have a little problem with that too. He finally says to them, Will you also go away? Will you also leave? Peter says in verse 68, Then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. And we believe and are sure that thou art that Christ, the Son of the living God. Amen. A revelation that man can see God and he has not seen Him spiritually in, in, in the realms of eternal bliss yet. But we can see Him on earth. They could see Him, they could see him there in Jesus. Um, they knew who He was. They believed on Him. And, and, and that afforded us a lot of um, ability to see and believe Him today. So, amen, and thank you, Brother Peter and others of those disciples that even though they also had a little hard time you know, they just like Job, they had the Spirit of God. They had the ability 
to not be plucked out of Satan, uh, out of God's hand by Satan, who would destroy us on every turn. Mm-hmm. So, I started out today trying to remind us to take His yoke upon us, for He is meek and lowly in heart, and He says His burden is light. Let's take that yoke upon us today, every day of our life, until we see Him again. We thank you for listening to today's message and invite you to visit Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church for worship services every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. Macedonia is located at 11 Staten Road on Highway 15, five miles north of Ackerman, Mississippi. For further information about Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church, you may visit our website at macedonia-pbc.org.